want to ask you to turn to Joshua chapter 2, and while you're turning there, uh, I want to say a word about uh, the many people who are working diligently, faithfully, trying to help as we uh, begin to build back out of this crisis and this tragedy that we've had. And uh, so many folks have worked, and it would be... uh, unfair for me to start naming individuals because I would miss somebody that has worked diligently and faithfully. But uh, during the welcome, uh, I saw uh, Nicole Moore's uh, folks are here, and uh, they're seated right in here. Why y'all stand up? They're here working with with the Tennessee Baptists who are here helping, and they uh, represent just so many people. We're glad you're here, glad you're in the service. And uh, Kevin and Nicole are on staff here. And uh, they're now on staff at a church in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I talked to Kevin last week, and he's organizing for two Sunday schools and, and the church that he's in. And so I, I told him, God bless you, brother. We've, we've been there, and we know what that is. But uh, I'm excited about them being here. They've given a week of their time, and they're back for another week to help out. And I appreciate them and so many like them that are coming. Our church is coordinating the effort of trying to get volunteer groups to come in and so many of our people have been up here. I was up here late yesterday afternoon, and so many of our folks working the phones and walking around, and they're tired and they're exhausted, and yet they're willing to work and willing to go the second mile. And uh, we have shown, I think, in the midst of all of this, what we really are. You know, we can talk a game, but what we really are comes out in a time of crisis. You know, Peter Lord said, it's what comes out of you when you're squeezed is what's on the inside. Well, we've been squeezed, and a lot of our folks have been squeezed, and, and I just commend and applaud and thank those of you who are working so diligently, who have given. Uh, in the mail this week, we've gotten uh, churches that just probably don't have 200 people that have sent us $200, and some have sent us $1,000 to just help people. And uh, I'm just grateful for what God's doing in the kingdom and what he's doing through people to burden their hearts to do something for someone else. Now, what this means is there's going to come a day in our life as a church family when there's going to be a tragedy and a disaster in another part of this country. And just if people have risen up to help us, we're going to be needing to go and to give to help them. God is blessing us right now by them giving to us and we're going to need to bless somebody else by us giving and going and helping them at some point. So God never gives us anything without giving us a responsibility to share that blessing with somebody else. So uh, as we begin to even pray now, I don't know if you've noticed this, somebody on CNN the other day made a statement. They said, you know, there have been more natural disasters in this last 12-month period than at any time in recorded history. God is up to something, and God is trying to get our attention, and God's people have a better platform in the midst of crisis and tragedy to minister the love of Jesus Christ than we do in days of prosperity. So we have to seize the moment that God has given us to love people in Jesus' name and to serve them in Jesus' name, and I commend you for doing it. Joshua chapter 2, Joshua chapter 2. If you remember in Joshua 1 that the people were told to make preparations for three days and they were to wait to go in and to possess the land. During that time, Joshua has sent two spies, not 12 as Moses did, 
put two spies in, and they are not to come and report back to the people, but they're to report to Joshua alone. While these two spies are in Jericho, they meet a harlot whose name is Rahab and lodge with her and stay with her. Joshua chapter 2 is a story of grace and salvation. It is a story of how God can miraculously save even in the midst of perversion, even in the midst of depravity, that God reaches down His hand of salvation and His hand of grace and touches people's lives. Rahab is the harlot who went from the hall of shame to the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She is one of only two women mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. She is one who experienced the grace of God because of her trust in God and her belief in the Lord, the God of Israel. Francis Schaeffer said, This woman stood alone in faith against the culture surrounding her, something none of us today in the Western world has ever yet had to do. For a period of time, she stood for the unseen against the seen, standing in acute danger until Jericho fell. Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith she did not perish. James chapter 2 tells us that she was justified by her works. What happened to Rahab? What happened to her can happen to anybody who believes on the Lord God. She had a change of heart. Now, the first thing about a change of heart is a change of heart involves a choice. Now, there are two things listed there for you. Actually, we're going to talk about three choices that she made. But the two that are listed there are, are interesting choices. The first choice she made was to protect the spies. She made the choice. These men were disguised, but they were immediately recognized when they came into Jericho, and she chose to protect them. Joshua chapter 2 and verse 2. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. Now, many commentators believe that the reason Rahab chose to protect them is because she had changed her way of life somewhere in this process of these 40 years, that she had actually already begun to believe in Jehovah. The truth of the matter is, whatever her state was spiritually, she risked her life to save the spies. Now, it may surprise us that God would choose to use a prostitute. But it shouldn't surprise us that he did. You see, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ was a friend of sinners, that those who were away from God always felt comfortable around Jesus, not because he condoned their sin, but because he loved them in the midst of their sin. Jesus Christ fellowshiped, ate supper with publicans and sinners and tax collectors. If Jesus were to be back today, he would be at church on Sunday, but he would be with the world during the week ministering to them and loving them and sharing with them the good news that his Father sent him to share. It shouldn't surprise us that he chose to use a prostitute. I think what should surprise us is that God somehow chooses to use people like me and you. You know, people that clean up well. People that look good on the outside and are socially acceptable. 
that somehow in the midst of it, God chooses to use us. You see, we have too high an opinion of ourselves. We have too much of an inflated ego, and we think we're too valuable to the kingdom. And God always reaches down, and he, he takes a prostitute, and he takes a drug addict, and he takes somebody that we say, they can never be anything, and God says, I can make them something. She made the choice to protect the spies. But she made a second choice that, quite honestly, gives us some problems. She made the choice to lie about the spies. See, she said that she didn't know where the men had come from, and she did. She said that they were gone, and they weren't gone, and she said that they didn't, she didn't know where they were, and she did know where they were. Now, should we justify the lie that Rahab told? No. Lying was a part of her culture. On the one hand, she saved the spies. On the other hand, she told a lie. She deceived the messenger from the king of Jericho. Now, was this wrong? Yes, it was. She had enough faith to save her, but she hadn't developed enough in her life to make the applications of faith that she would make later on in her life. I would contend that Rahab was a very new believer, and she made the mistakes that a new believer makes. Now, what happens is, is we in the church, we, we, some of us have been saved so long, we think when you get saved, all of a sudden everybody's supposed to be perfect, just like you are. They're not supposed to make any mistakes. They're, they're never supposed to blow it. They're never supposed to stump their toe and, and do something that's outside of God's will. Or, or, you know, their flesh is never supposed to come up because, after all, they've been saved. Being saved is a cure-all. Well, I like the story that Howard Hendricks tells. Hendricks was for years the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys, and, and he took a minister out to the practice one day, and he wanted this minister to meet some of these professional athletes. Well, the reason everybody knew it was a minister is because he had on a coat and tie while everybody's out there in 105-degree heat in Dallas, Texas, doing two-a-days. So he takes the guy out there to meet him, and the minister's out there. He's leaning up against the fence, and he wants to meet all these professional athletes. You know, get his picture taken with him, meet him, and, and impress his friends that he went to the Cowboys camp. And so Hendricks has got him out there, and he's talking to him, and he said, now you see Roger Staubach's out there, and you see this person's out there, and this person's out there. He said, well, he said, you see that guy over there? He said, he plays linebacker for the Cowboys. He said, he's just been saved just a few months. He said, oh, really? He said, yeah, man, he got gloriously saved. I mean, he's just been saved a few months, and he's excited about the Lord. So he just kind of focuses in on this guy. He's a new believer, and he's focused in on him. He's got a pretty strong reputation for being a tough football player. And so they're running some drills and running some practices, and the guy misses a tackle, and he says a cuss word. And the preacher turns to Hendricks, who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and says, I thought you said the guy was saved. He said, he is saved. He said, but I heard him. He just said a cuss word. And Hendricks said, man, you should have heard him before he got saved. <laughs> now, let's be honest. It takes a while to progress in your faith, doesn't it? You didn't get all the questions answered and all of life figured out, and you didn't become what you are today overnight, did you? You still had some things you had to deal with. You still had some things that you needed to give up. We sang Grace Greater Than All Our Sins in hymn number 201. Hymn number 202 is Amazing Grace. That's the Baptist National Anthem. 
We sang that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton wrote that hymn. John Newton was saved while he was working as an employee of a company that transported slaves from Africa to England. God gloriously saved him. But for one year after he was saved, he still worked in the slave trade until God began to work in his heart and convict him that being involved in the slave trade was immoral and it was unchristlike to sell anybody else into slavery. And so he got out of the slave trade, but it took him a year after he was saved and wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. You say, well, why didn't he change overnight? Same reason you didn't change overnight. Same reason you're still working through some things. Same reason I'm still working through some things. It's because we are so affected by our old nature that Dr. Havner says that when God saves us, he doesn't give us a tune-up, he gives us a new engine. Because the old one's so bad, and you still got that old engine that just wants to crank up every now and then. Just wants to run a while, get the engine and the fluids running, just to make sure it's still there. Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin and death? I tell you, there are days when I get up and look in the mirror, and it's not because I look, it's because I know what's on the inside. I say, O wretched man that I am. Now, she chose to lie. The Scripture, just because it records a lie, doesn't mean that God approves of it. You remember Abraham lied about who Sarah was to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh. God didn't approve of his lie, but God recorded it. Why? Because God wants us to see his people, warts and all. He doesn't want to paint a picture of those who have served him in history and say, well, I might as well not even try. I can't be like those people. They didn't have any mistakes. They didn't have any faults. They were people just like you and I. The people in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 were people just like me and just like you. They had to process in their sanctification. They didn't just get it and it was clear and over and everything was wonderful and boy, every day they sang, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Some days they sang, if I have one more day with Jesus, I'm going to be sick. And you've had those days too. I mean, you've had those days that have been Job days, not mountaintop transfiguration days. And she lied. Now, here's the problem. I have heard people say, well, since Abraham lied and God blessed him, and since David lied and God blessed him, and, and since Rahab lied and God blessed her, then that must mean that sometimes it's okay to lie. You know, two years ago at the Southern Baptist Convention, we had Oliver North speak. Oliver North is an American hero, and there's no doubt about that, but he lied to Congress. So I guess it's okay if you lie to liars. But you see, the danger is, is if we ever paint the picture that says, it's okay to lie if you lie to the right people. It's like a saying that we used to have in college, I'll lie to my friends and you lie to your friends, but let's tell the truth to each other. No, God hates lying. And I believe, this is my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. I believe that God could have saved those spies without Rahab lying. 
He's a God of truth. She lied. She chose to lie. She was a new believer, but I don't think God had to have Rahab tell a lie and sin just to bail him out of a tight spot. Now there's a third choice, and that is the choice that's not listed, but the choice that is most prominent, and that is she chose Christ. She chose God. She chose the Lord God of Israel to serve him. However weak, however immature, however imperfect her faith was, the truth of the matter is she made the choice to choose God. Now, not only is it uh, a change of heart involves choice, but it involves conviction. Look at verse 9. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Look at verse 11. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. You know what she was saying? The king's already told us. He called a news conference, put up the microphone and everything, and, and he's already told us Jericho's a lost cause. No matter what we do, we can't win. She said, I know the Lord has given you the land. Do you realize that Rahab had more faith in God's power than the spies who went in 40 years before? I know God's given you the land. Well, hold your place in, in Joshua chapter 2 and turn to Exodus 15, and you'll see how God fulfilled his promise. Now remember, God had told the people that he was going to give them the land. They didn't believe it. They disobeyed God. They walked away from God, and they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, never living up to the promise, and dying in the wilderness, everybody over 20 years of age. Yet God had said, I'm going to give you the land. Now notice what else God had promised them in Exodus 15 and verse 14. The people have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they are motionless as stone. Until thy people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom thou hast purchased. You see, the Canaanites knew that they were squatters on God's land, and they feared eviction, and they trembled. It says they were as motionless as stone. Why? Because they had heard about the great and awesome power of the God of Israel. They were demoralized. And what led them to fear should have led Israel to faith, but Israel was also led to fear. Rahab, however, it led her to faith. It led Joshua and Caleb to have faith. You see, when you face obstacles in your life, you have to have enough convictions that you believe the Word of God and you believe the promises of God and it doesn't lead you to fear the obstacles and the circumstances you face. It leads you to have faith in the midst of the obstacles and circumstances that you face. Now, there's a third thing. A change of heart invokes a covenant, verse 12. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Look at verse 17. 
The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come to the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. And gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath according to which you have made us swear. Verse 21, And she said, According to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, there's a word there that is used when it's the word in New American Standard that says deal kindly. That is the Hebrew word hesed. It is used 250 times in the Old Testament, and it means loyal and steadfast and faithful love. It's a covenant term, a covenant relationship, a steadfast and loyal relationship. She says, I have dealt in hesed with you, in loyal and steadfast and covenant love with you. Now, would you deal in hesed, covenant, steadfast, and loyal love with me? Now, notice verse 12. Verse 12 says, the Lord, not your Lord, not the God of Israel, but the Lord. She personalizes a relationship with God. That is evidence of her faith. Anyone else would have said, as the king said, the God of Israel, spies from the people, the God of Israel. They would talk about a distant deity. She says, the Lord. Then she says in verse 21, according to your words, so be it. Not only was there evidence of faith, there was an act of faith. They said, you tie the cord, you put it out the window, you gather your family in, and you keep them there. How did she exhibit her faith? She did it by hanging the scarlet cord out the window. She did it by hiding the spies. She did it by bringing her family under the roof to say, if we will do this, God has said through his servants, we will be protected. Now, her faith produced works. That's what the book of James says in chapter 2. Her faith was not in the cord. Her faith was in the Lord. You see, the cord was a symbol of the substance of her faith. It was the evidence that the people of Israel would see that she had faith. It was not her faith. It was the evidence of her faith. Now, in the same way, walking an aisle, being baptized, joining a church is the evidence of faith. It's not faith. That's not what saves you. Some people think they get saved if they walk an aisle and shake a preacher's hand, sit down, stand up, and introduce, and all the people come by and shake hands with them and say, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. Well, I must be saved because I made a decision. Some people think they're saved because they walk through the waters of baptism. Well, if you live in a land of famine, you can't be baptized. That means you're not saved. Some people think they're saved by joining a church. Those are all evidences of something that has happened internally, but those are not the internal faith. That's external exhibits of faith. You see, the scarlet cord was there to symbolize what she had already done in her heart. It was a symbol. It was not the substance. 
and you know that Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus. Here's a harlot that Matthew says as he brings about the lineage of Jesus, all the generations of Jesus. She was in the lineage of King David, and King David was in the lineage of Jesus. And if Rahab hadn't been saved, then there would have never been the lineage that was carried on until Jesus. You know what? Jesus Christ came from an imperfect family tree. The only thing perfect in Jesus' family was Jesus. His mother wasn't perfect. His brothers weren't perfect. His earthly father wasn't perfect. The Holy Spirit of God came upon his mother and she was miraculously conceived and gave birth to a sinless son whose name was Jesus Christ. But I tell you, somewhere in that process, he claimed Rahab as his family. You say, well, I, I tell you, I just don't think Jesus should have done that. Well, you got horse thieves in your background. I mean, we've all got shady people in our past and in our families. You know, we've got some pretty loose limbs in our families, don't we? That's some strange limbs in our family. Got some we wish somebody had pruned a long time ago. But here's a woman who exhibited faith, and because she exhibited faith, guess what? She got to be in the line of people that gave birth to children, that gave birth to children, that gave birth to children, and one day, one gave birth to Jesus. That's what I call sure enough saved. She got sure enough saved, and it changed her whole life. The scarlet cord was symbolic of the blood covenant. You cannot turn to a page in Scripture and not see blood sprinkled on every page. In every sacrifice in the temple, in every sacrifice in the tabernacle, all pointed to the one day, the ultimate sacrifice of the unblemished Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that that sacrifice would be paid once and for all. In the book of Acts, it tells us the church was purchased with His blood. In Colossians, it tells us we have been made at peace through the blood of His cross. In Ephesians, it tells us we have redemption through His blood. In 1 John, it tells us that the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And today, you are either under the blood and you are saved, or you're over the blood and you're trampling it, and you are lost. The book of Hebrews says in verse 29 of chapter 10, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? You're either under it or you're over it. As we become more sophisticated in our society, and as we become smarter in our own eyes, you're going to see a diminishing of preaching on the blood of Jesus Christ. But you will never see it diminished in the Word of God. And any church or any preacher that fails to preach without apology the blood atonement of Jesus Christ is preaching a different gospel than the Word of God. It is the way of salvation. Say, well, it just sounds so gory. It was gory. It cost God His Son. It cost the Son His life on the cross 
to shed his blood once and for all so we wouldn't have to keep making sacrifices. But the sacrifice has been paid once and for all through the blood of Jesus. George Whitfield was preaching a sermon. George Whitfield was a great preacher of his time, one of the great leaders of the Great Awakening. And, and he was preaching, and he preached, the door was shut. He was referring to the ark and how they shut the door. And once the door was shut, no one else could go into the ark. And two young, smart-aleck kids in the back of the church where Whitfield was preaching said, yeah, well, if that door shut, there'll be another one that'll be open. And a few minutes later, Whitfield was preaching along, and he said, you know, there may be somebody here today that would say, yeah, but if that door shut, there'll be another one that's open. And the two kids looked at each other, and they thought, how do you know we said that? And he said, that's right, there will be another door open. It will open to the bottomless pit, and you will fall into hell. And those two boys were saved. Rahab made her confession by hanging a scarlet cord out the window. You will be able to make your confession today by getting up from where you are in just a moment and walking down these aisles and talking to one of these ministers and sharing with a counselor about your decision. That won't be what saves you. You'll be saved before you ever take the first step. It'll be the decision to take the first step that saves you. You see, that's just the evidence. That's just your scarlet cord. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We sang this hymn earlier. Would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you or evil the victory win? Would you be free from your passion and pride? Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. Would you be whiter, much whiter than so? Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. You see, a faith that will not lead to public confession will not lead you to heaven. There is only one way. There's only one door. There's only one life. And there's only one that has the truth. And that person is Jesus Christ, the Lord God of heaven and earth, and the one who knocks at your heart door today to say, if you'll open the door... I'll come in. And there's your scarlet thread that you can hang out your window.